Hello and thanks for tuning in and welcome back if you've been here before. I'm Vernon Mann with some more ripping yarns from my days with TV news as a foreign editor, producer and correspondent way back in the 70s and 80s. Now what's all this fuss nowadays about homeworking? I was doing it in 1980, a pioneer. Well, not actually working from home, more waiting at home to get sent somewhere on an assignment. By the end of the 70s, I'm travelling so much as a producer, I've no role as such in the newsroom. In between trips, I'm like a spare whatnot at a wedding. I have no desk for a start. I'm not on any rotor, not attached to any programme. The foreign desk is my spiritual home, but they only have the power to send me places. I don't have a title. They call me a fixer, but that doesn't fit into any pay grade structure. So sub-editors, never much respected by travelling reporters and on regular shifts, are on the same grade as me, who's rattling around the world at a moment's notice with scant regard to my personal life. Thanks again, Avril, for putting up with the disruption. So I remind the bosses that I live in Chiswick, just 15 minutes from Heathrow, and that beepers have improved so much it might make sense if I stayed around the airport area, that is home, on a sort of 24-hour standby beeper permanently attached to my body. I'm gobsmacked when they say, that's a good idea. You have to be ready to travel at any time, though, they warn. So what's new, I reply. I take proud possession of a Motorola beeper, the newest model with a city-wide range, By this time, late 79, there are only 3 million users worldwide. I'm one of them. You might think that now in the 2020s they'd be obsolete, like VHS tapes, floppy disks, telephone directories. But it's reckoned 80% of all hospitals still use them. So, day one of working from home, and the beeper makes not a peep. I feel guilty walking the dog and nipping down the pub at lunchtime. Not my fault if the world's having a quiet day. Day two is quiet as well. In the evening, I go to North London to see a movie with friends. I check the news headlines on the radio before I go, just in case. All quiet. The film is Rocky II. Sylvester Stallone's Rocky Balboa has a bloody rematch with Apollo Creed. Great movie. The girls get a bit squeamish about the blood. We go to a Greek restaurant afterwards. My mate is Greek. We're settling down at the table with our partners when my beeper goes off. The first time. I asked the maitre d' for the use of his phone and call the office. Where the F have you been, screams the foreign editor. We've been bloody beeping you non-stop. There's been a coup in Spain. What's the point of having you on call when you don't bloody answer the call? You've missed the flight now. I want you in the office sharp at ten tomorrow and your explanation had better be good. It's a disaster. What had happened was that some lieutenant colonel had led 200 armed guards into the Congress of Deputies in Madrid during a vote to elect a new president. Shots have fired, hostages held, no one's hurt, and everyone's set free after King Juan Carlos goes on the telly and says the lieutenant colonel had got it all wrong. The programme that night has sensational pictures from Spanish television, voiced by our reporter there. I'm not sure what difference my presence would have made. Next morning, I get the tube to the office. They're not quite so angry as the night before because the story is essentially over. So why did you not respond to your beeper, they ask, emphasising the obvious that it's not a very good start to my new stay-at-home deal. Because I didn't hear it, I say, which I know is a pretty limp excuse. I don't think it actually went off at all. They call in our chief engineer, the one who recommended the company buy this particular model. 
He listens to what had happened. Oh, he says, it'll never work in a cinema. All the soundproofing and all that. The signal will never get through. So I leave the meeting room with my head held high, my beeper hitched to my belt and my stay-at-home deal still intact. It isn't long before everyone in the building has a beeper. They give you freedom from the office, but they're easy to lose. One of mine still in a hedge in Somerset, lost when I fell off my bike on the way back from an assignment in the local pub. I spent hours cycling up and down the hill the next day, my wife constantly calling the beeper from home. Never did find it. I lost another down the toilet while having a pee. Enough of all that. Let's move on to the early 1980s. Iraq has invaded Iran. Probably because Iraq doesn't want Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran to destabilise Iraq with his Islamist revolutionaries. In the Iran revolution, they'd forced the pro-Western Shah of Iran to hurriedly flee, taking only a plain load of booty with him. Poor bugger. Saddam Hussein, yes him, becomes president of Iraq that same year. He wants to get full control of the Shat al-Arab waterway, Iraq's only access to the Gulf, presently shared with Iran in some daft deal done after the First World War. Saddam reckons Iran, its forces weakened by the revolution, will be a pushover. Initially he does well, winning swathes of Iranian territory, and ever the showman, he invites journalists from all over the world to Baghdad to cover the war and record what he no doubt thinks will be an historic victory. If only he knew. I get a call at home, not a beep. Hours later, I'm at Amman Airport, Jordan, mingling with other journalists from the plane, dozens of them, including our crew and reporter, lining up to get our passports stamped with an Iraqi entry visa. We're marshalled onto a fleet of elderly, dusty buses. Three or four of them were going to Baghdad across the Syrian desert. One of our minders tells us the trip will take 15 hours. At first, the bus is filled with lively chatter, not to mention the Arabic music, being played at full blast by our driver. Veteran newspaper correspondents stand in the aisle, renewing old acquaintances, steadying themselves as the bus bounces along the unmade road. An American network TV crew huddle at the back of the bus, their producer furtively glancing at opposition network guys as he talks quietly to his team. I hear him mention the word plan. Lucky him, we don't have one. We stop at a roadside cafe after three hours or so, kebabs and fries. An American newspaper journo produces a personal pepper mill from his bag. After that, it quietens down a bit. It's a long ride. A couple of hours from Baghdad were stopped at an Iraqi army checkpoint. Two soldiers walked down the aisle checking our passports. They say we must obey a total blackout from now on. The bus's inside lights are switched off. We're in darkness. Peppermill Man produces a small torch and attaches it to a leather strap, which he fixes to his head like a miner's lamp. He shines it on his portable typewriter and resumes writing his piece. The army guys confiscate his torch. The driver moves off with his headlights on. He's stopped by the army who shout over the music that blackout means blackout and he must turn off the lights. At least there's a moon. Not long after dawn, eyes blinking in the sudden sun already hot, we arrive at the Manso Amelia Hotel, a Spanish-run, allegedly five-star hotel. All ten stories of it on the banks of the Tigris River, 90 clicks north of the site of ancient Babylon. Not that we'll be playing tourist. The Ministry of Information have set up a press room on the second floor. 
There are five international telephones and four telex machines. There are ten floors of journalists all wanted to contact their offices around the world. The phone in my room doesn't work, not even for room service. The ones in the press room, hastily installed by the ministry, only work occasionally. One Dutch reporter dials more than 200 times before he gets through to his editor. The average hit rate is 50 dials. The information ministry guys apologise for everything and say they're just not used to dealing with so many demands at once. Everyone is screaming at us, they complain. It's not our fault, they moan, and tell us there are another 900 reporters waiting for entry visas in Jordan and Kuwait. My camera crew, meanwhile, have been bussed off to the war under military escort. The first thing I know they'll try to do is to ditch the escort and go it alone. My role is to keep an eye on what's going on in Baghdad and cover any news conferences and such like with an agency crew. And of course handle any film that comes back from the crew, get it processed and edited or ship it to London ASAP if that's feasible. The airport is open, I just flew into it, but I don't know if any other airlines are flying in other than the Iraqi national carrier. Shipping film may not be an option, the TV station is off limits too. As the sun goes down, the lights in the hotel go out. I'm told it's just a power cut, but the candlelit lobby is abuzz with rumours of an impending Iranian airstrike. The lifts don't work, surprise, surprise, and people bump into each other in the dark on the stairs, flickering cigarette lighters barely showing the way. There's a power outage in the basement bar one night, in the dark. I have a deep and personal conversation with an ABC News producer I'd met on previous Middle East assignments. He talks me through at length the breakup of his marriage and the impending divorce, including details I'm sure he wouldn't mention had the lights been on. One morning, taking the sun on my sixth-floor balcony, I watched two Israeli Air Force F-16 fighter planes snake below me at rooftop level and bomb what turns out to be an Iraqi nuclear reactor being built just outside the city. You can see the smoke. I watched them snake out again, surprising the anti-aircraft gunner adjacent the hotel who falls off his seat, still hanging on to the firing handles. His gun swings around and strafes the hotel, chunks of concrete falling from the balcony next to me. It's a dad's army moment. I run downstairs to the phones in the press centre and pay a million, twenty dollars, to dial London while I try for a comment from the ministry people. There isn't one, but they do confirm that this is an Israeli attack, not Iranian. I get back to the phone. The minion says he's been dialing the London number without success. So I take over and on the 23rd dial get through a good result. I relate the story to the foreign desk, manned that day by an imbecile. There's nothing about it on the wires, he says. Nothing at all on AP, Reuters, any of them. They may not even have seen it, I say, because the gang of them were at breakfast when I left the buffet. And even if they did see it, they won't have filed it yet because they won't be able to get a phone line. And when they do, they will be filing the same stuff I'm telling you about now. I'm first with the news, for goodness sake. That's what I'm paid for, isn't it? There's no need to swear, he says. I'm not going to run the story until it's confirmed by the wires. And that's that. I take a deep breath and complain no more. Instead, I record a voice report, which he says will be used in the lunchtime bulletin. But only if... Yes, you've got it, only if it's confirmed. What's this guy thinking, that I'm hallucinating? I was in good company as a witness to the raid. King Hussein of Jordan was on his yacht in the Gulf of Aqaba 
When he spotted the Israeli planes flying low over his desert, he tried to get a call through to Saddam Hussein to warn him, but couldn't get through. We were unable to get film process in Baghdad, so decided to rebase to Jordan. I take a driver to Amman with the latest offerings from the reporting team delivered to the hotel by the military. That long drive again. I get some sleep during the night, curled up uncomfortably on the back seat. I'm gently shaken awake by the driver. It's just after dawn. He puts his finger to his lips and points through the windscreen. There, pecking about in the middle of the dusty, corrugated road, is a huge, huge bird. Condor, says the driver, really excited. Very big, yes? It's the biggest flying bird in the world, I discover later. The magnificent creature appears to examine us through the glass before taking unhurriedly to the air and soaring off across the sand. Superb. We drive on to Amman, getting there in time to get the film processed, edited and satellited to London. Our Amman operation consists of me and a film editor. We work from the Intercontinental Hotel, mostly poolside. There are 15 or so of us US network producers, editors, the BBC, a few odds and sods. King Hussein of Jordan pops into the bar every now and then for a chat. Not that I can claim we ever had a heart-to-heart. We share a regular courier driver who ferries film from the war zone, Baghdad and then on to Jordan. We get plenty of notice of when a shipment is on the way and enjoy some of the sights of Jordan while we're waiting, including the old Roman city of Jirash. The International Media Nerve Centre is around the pool in the daytime and the bar, of course, at night. The hotel serves as a training centre for Jordanian Airlines flight attendants. My lips are sealed. The war drags on and on. News organisations grow weary of it. We're recalled to London. The conflict drags on for eight years, the longest recorded conflict between two states. The result is a stalemate. No winner and no losers, unless you count the 500,000 to 2 million troops on both sides who lost their lives plus thousands of Kurds killed by Iraqi forces in operations involving chemical weapons. Saddam Hussein was hanged in December 2006 after being convicted by an Iraqi tribunal of crimes against humanity. I never got to the front line in the Iran-Iraq war, and I have to say, it's not something I regret. This is Vernon Mann. Thanks for listening in next time. My troubles in Ireland. Bye for now. (music) 